0: Wisconsin horticulture update for August 28th, the last Friday of the month. We're going to go around and check in, but I just wanted to give you a fun little story last night around the table as my daughter was reading her Mother Earth news of this month. She read an article that was written about an organic chicken urban gardener in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and they are talking about Sweet Little Rhinelander and how this woman could eat all year in her organic garden produce. Under the Poverty Line, and she gave a shout-out to UW Extension because they helped answer all of her organic questions. So I thought that was pretty cool for a national magazine. So thanks. Let's see who's on the line this morning, and we'll start in the southwest part of the state with anybody, Dane and West. How about southeast, Dane and East? Anyone on the line?
1: Good morning, everyone. This is Chrissy from Walworth County, and we don't have too much to report this weekend. We're supposed to be getting some rain, as much of us are, so that's really good. From the rain, what was it, last week, the grass is still doing fairly well in most areas. I guess typical reports are coming in, tar spot on maples, anthracnose, scorch on some of them, especially trees that have a little bit of stress already. Getting a lot of emerald ash borer questions, as I have all summer long. We're getting some fruit crop questions coming in, and I have a specific question. I'm looking for some heirloom garlic varieties for a small organic grower. If anybody has those, I would be more than happy to take those. And that's about it. Our fair is coming up this week, so our Master gardeners and myself will be busy at the fair answering questions as we always do. And other than that...
0: Could you give an example of an emerald ash borer question since I haven't had any and I know we're a few years behind you?
1: yes, I would be more than happy to. So let's see, I had two people call me this week. One in particular was a man, president of one of the lake associations, and their ash trees on the beach area, he called and said these trees are just in decline, and he wanted to know what he should do about it. And I said, well, how far along are they? And he says, well, they're about 40%. And I said, well, you might be able to spend more of your money purchasing different trees for Mm -hmm. the area than to be treating your ash trees at this point, because the pressure is so high here. Here's another example of a call that I got this week. Was someone had called from Delivan and they wanted to just report it and see if I could come out and look at it and confirm it. And at this point, I don't even okay, second guess Emerald Dashboard. It's so prolific. I honestly have not seen a tree that has been healthy in this mm. area all year, really. I don't even know if I could drive around and find a healthy ash tree at this point, unless I knew that the people have been treating it actively for the past several years. So
0: Those are great. Thank
2: you. I could keep going on and on. <laughs> That's typical, though. Okay. Anyone else in the southeast? This is Sharon in Milwaukee County, and I really have nothing else to report. There's no outbreaks of anything if anything, it's things that we're missing. I guess this year, the Magnolia scale was really bad. But it's the only thing that really flared up. Everything else was pretty normal, pretty standard, except that powdery mildew was down, and apple scab is down. We don't have nearly as much of that as we have had. Other than that, there's really nothing else to report. Very good. More from the southeast?
3: This is Barb in Kenosha County, very similar to what Chrissy and Sharon are already reporting. The only other thing I could add is we did have a confirmed light blight sample this week. Long story made short, it's a good example of how sometimes you can't look at a picture on the Internet and have somebody correctly diagnose it. So this is one that they had looked at university resources, and just basically looked at the first page of one of our fact sheets and diagnosed the problem as verticillium. And it's because the plant had pretty much just kind of collapsed. So we had to bring in a sample, and looking a little more closely, found that not only was there septoria in there, but more importantly, there was also light blight. So sometimes those pictures, you have to try to get them to come in and take a little closer look at them. So that's kind of my cautionary tale for the day. Otherwise, nothing new or different.
1: Thank you. This is Chrissy again. Thanks, Barb, for reminding me. We also have late blight here in Walworth County. Let's
0: see, You want to go up the east coast a little bit into Washington County, Ozaki. Anyone up there? Up through to Green Bay?
4: This is Tim in Winnebago. It's kind of hard for me to report because I've been off for the last two weeks on vacation, but looking at the reports from our plant health advisors, it looks like we've had quite a few questions with fruit trees, some tomatoes, we're getting a lot of calls with bees or wasps, people wanting to know what they are and if they are truly bees, can someone come out and move on type questions. Over the last two weeks, we have gotten some rain, so that's really helped out up here. And other than that, that's about all I can report on.
0: Any more from the East Coast? Moving inland to Wapaka, Washara.
2: This is Ann from Outagamie. For the Outagamie County report, we had one inch of rain this week. I got a lot of phone calls about critters: woodchucks, snakes, birds. We also had some lawn grub questions, slugs. I had a tomato grower who had tomato mosaic virus that Brian identified. And it kind of broke that grower's heart when he realized what it meant for his business. And then lastly, I thought this was interesting. The first sample of strawberry clover was found in Outagamee County, and the homeowner had brought it in to me for identification. I only said clover. She brought it to the herbarium, and the specialist there said it was strawberry clover. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's all.
0: Could you describe a little bit about the life history of strawberry clover?
2: She brought in a seed head that I had never seen before, and the way she described it, and I would agree, looked like a miniature soccer ball with little tufts coming out at the corner of each pentagon of the soccer ball. And at the point that she brought it into me, it was all dried out. It was beige in color, and you could hear the seeds rattling around in there. And that's what I used to identify it as a clover. Up until the point that it developed a seed head, I think it looked pretty much the same as what you would call just general lawn clover. That's what I would call it. But the seed head was so unique. I had never seen that before. But the specialist at the herbarium, like I said, was pretty happy to get a sample for her collection.
0: Moving into the center of the state,
2: Green Lake, Portage. This is Swalton, Portage County. We've had some calls
5: lately on the emerald ash borer, and we're certainly not as far along as they are in the southern part of the state. Some of the ash that I've noticed are beginning to decline and The city of Stevens Point has announced that they're going to start treating some of the city trees, but homeowners are asking questions, too, about what they can do and what can be done to save their trees. This week I had a call on peony mildew, and last week cedar apple rust on serviceberry. Late flight has been pretty busy here in Portage County. I had two or three confirmations last week and probably another one this week. I haven't gotten note back from Brian yet. CWD has kind of quieted down here in Portage County. Not that it's gone away, it's just I think people have kind of given up on seeing anything about it. Last week we had over three inches of rain. I thought it was quiet here, but I guess not. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome.
4: Can I ask Walt a question? Has EAB even been found in Portage County yet?
5: It has not been confirmed that I'm aware of, but I believe it is in Adams and Wood County.
4: Okay, thank you.
0: Anyone on the line from Adams or Wood County? How about west of there into Monroe, La Crosse, southwest again? Anyone from southwest north to La Crosse? All right. Anyone south of Highway 21 that we haven't got yet? All right. Let's go to the northeast. Marinette, Florence. Okay. And west of there, northwest Wisconsin? I'll speak up for Douglas County. We're just happy. Picking red tomatoes in August is kind of a special thing for us, and people actually harvesting peppers, just home growers, I'm saying. We still don't have SWD confirmed in Douglas County. I thought we were on that page, but we're not quite there yet, though I'm assuming we have it by what some of the growers are telling me and showing me. Emerald Ash I'm just interested in where this is going. I've had virtually no questions, though the city has been removing all their trees in the past two years. We've had a couple of vendors that are doing well. They're marketing their treatment products, and that might be keeping some of the questions at bay, but I suspect that it's going to be like other places where they'll wait until their trees are beyond protection. Having that said, we have very little except for septoria and early blight. Our tomatoes are looking good. We've just had a really nice growing season and a lot of successes. None of the leafhopper problems that we usually have, we haven't had that. We're starting to get some slugs, but that's not been a general issue either. So this will probably be one of those summers that goes down in the books for successes for horticulture and home gardening. Anyone else from the Northwest? Is there anyone I missed out there across the state that would like to give a report for us? Okay, how about our specialists?
6: This is PJ, I'm here. Things are finally starting to quiet down a little bit insect-wise. Japanese beetles haven't been terribly active this summer. There's been a few hot spots here and there, but overall, by the time we get to late August and early September, they're really starting to trail off. So if folks haven't been seeing much damage, I don't think they're going to be getting anything significant at this point. So we're at about the end of the season for Japanese beetles. Probably the biggest thing lately, the late season yellow jackets and wasps. This week alone, I've probably had 12 to 15 calls or emails or chatting with folks at Farm Tech Days that were dealing with yellow jacket or bald-faced hornet nests either up in a tree, in a wall void in their house or in a soffit area, or down in the ground. Earlier this summer, and it was just posted about two, three weeks ago, I worked with my colleague Jeff Hahn in Minnesota and Laura Jesse in Iowa to revise a regional fact sheet on wasp, yellow jacket, and bee control. And so if you just do an Internet search for University of Minnesota wasp control, you'll find the fact sheet online. I'm an author on there. But it just goes through in a lot of details for all those insects that folks might be running into. So that's a good general source of information. We're also at that time of the season where orb weaver spiders are going to be popping up. I have had a handful of cases already, but if you see something or someone sends in a picture of a fairly round bulbous spider in a garden or out in the yard in a bush with nice big web, probably one of the orb weavers, there's a couple of common species like the cross orb weavers and a few others, beneficial creatures to have around the garden though. I heard someone mention magnolia scale earlier, and I feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point because this one has been popping up now for several weeks. But we are right at that time of the year where the juveniles, which are the vulnerable life stage, are out wandering around on the twigs. And so now is the time to go out and treat. You can get them with just about any type of contact insecticide, one of the pyrethroids or seven, something along those lines, or even horticultural oil or insecticidal soap but you could always hit them once and then maybe go back 10, 14 days later and check again. The crawlers are very, very tiny, but one thing someone could try is taking tape, such as masking tape or duct tape is probably light enough color, and you can put that on the branches. And if you're picking up these little brownish spots, it means you still have some crawlers around. Other than that, a few things you folks might be getting reports of it's the time of year where there's all kinds of katydids. These are the big, neon-greenish-looking grasshopper-like creatures, and also tree crickets. And both katydids and tree crickets can make all kinds of noises. These are the insects making noises at night, whereas the katydids are making noise mostly during the day. And then one other one that might be popping up, there is a goldenrod soldier beetle, which can be very common this time of the year on all types of flowers. They generally resemble a firefly, except they are almost entirely yellow in color with some black stripes going down the wing covers, a little bit of black on the body, but very common this time of year. They don't harm anything, but they do show up at flowers to feed on pollen as a protein source and perhaps a little bit of nectar as well. Other than that, as I mentioned, things are finally starting to quiet down around the insect lab for the season. So does anyone have any insect-related questions for me?
0: I have a question about scales in general, though. The treatment is going to be with dormant oil later, right?
6: Well, with scales, there is an option to go out with a dormant oil. You could do that early in the spring before buds start breaking, And for some folks that are dealing with severe infestations of magnolia scale, that's one thing that I've been mentioning is you can hit them now when the crawlers or juveniles are out, but if there's an awful lot of them just to be safe, you can go out again in the spring before the buds pop and hit it with a dormant oil to help clean things up. So in general, scales you can control with a dormant oil, but if we are at the point of the year where the juveniles are active, we can also hit them with a general contact spray. Okay, thank you.
5: PJ, is that orb spider what we might commonly call a garden spider, the big ones?
6: Yeah, so there are a couple of the big ones that folks refer to as garden spiders from that orb weaver group, and those garden spiders are the good-sized ones with kind of banded colored legs, and they're often whitish, greens, yellow, some blacks in there.
5: The ones that really scare you
7: when you get into the web.
6: <laughs> oh, yeah, so those are from that same orb weaver family.
7: Thank you. Kevin up in Spooner, can you just remind us of the life cycle of these yellow jackets and bald-faced hornets as we get into the fall?
6: Sure, and I'm glad you brought that up, Kevin, because that's one of the considerations for management. So for the yellow jackets and bald-faced hornets that we run into, they start their nests and colonies from scratch each year in the spring. So one thing, if you can catch them early and you notice them early and you take them out back in June... That prevents them from building up the colony size, and right around this time of the year is when they're at their peak colony size, and it can be hundreds, thousands of workers, and if it's in a bad spot where kids are going to encounter the nest, it can be a dangerous situation. But on the other hand, because these colonies die out in the fall, once we get some hard frost into October and for sure by probably 1st of November, the colonies have just died out. If there's a nest tucked back somewhere or way up in a tree where it's just inaccessible and there's minimal contact between the insects and humans, you can always just leave it because that colony will die out and the nest could be taken care of or removed at a later date. So in general, they start up from scratch in the spring builds in colony size the entire colony dies out late in the summer early fall except for certain females that have mated they'll go find a rotten log or soil or some other sheltered spot to spend the winter and they will be the queens next year and start new batches of nests
0: any other questions for insects for pj brian
6: Good morning, everyone.
8: In terms of what I've been seeing in the clinic here, mainly a lot of herbaceous stuff this week and also vegetables. I had bee balm, surprise, surprise, with powdery mildew that came in, a black-eyed susan with a lot of septoria leaf spots. There's a particular variety called Goldstrom that tends to be very susceptible to that particular disease to the point where the leaves will turn entirely brown. We had some coleus come in from the trial at the West Madison Ag Research Station that had downy mildew. I have to say, when I first saw the symptoms on these plants, I thought it was a viral problem. There was a bit of color break in the leaves. These were darkly colored leaves, the maroon varieties, and they had a lot of sunty growth at the tips of the leaves, and those leaf tips were green. But there was a lot of sporulation of perinospora, which is one of the downy mildew organisms on the bottom surface of those leaves. We've had some root and crown rots come in on sedum, which is notoriously susceptible particularly to Phytophthora root rot. And then we had a moth sample that came in, and this was being grown as an ornamental in a garden, and it had some, well, I can't really say root rot because they don't really have true roots, but rhizome and crown rot had a mishmash of root rot-style organisms. And then on the vegetable arena, An interesting celery sample that came in, the leaves almost looked like they had chlorosis, a very light-colored foliage, almost white with dark green veins, and we tested that for viruses just because that can be a viral symptom as well, and it did test positive for cucumber mosaic virus, which does tend to cause that sort of symptom and one of the most disgusting potato samples that I think I've ever seen. It was some tubers that were held together by soil that was loaded with bacterial material, and you touched the tubers and they disintegrated into a mass of snot, and that was lots of fun to work with. A winter squash sample that came in with both powdery mildew and also downy mildew. That was from Dane County. And then tomato samples, two late light samples, one from Kenosha County, one from Wood County, and then some saptori leaf spots, the tobacco mosaic that Ann mentioned, and then some cucumber mosaic on that same sample as well. Well, you mentioned you had sent in a sample to me for a late-white check. When did you send that in?
7: I think it went in Tuesday or Wednesday.
8: We may not have received that yet, so we'll watch for it in the mail. Any questions from anyone?
7: Say, Brian, this is Kevin. I know this is a little bit after the fact, but we have one of Erin Silva's trials up here at the research mm-hmm. station, that Novik organic vegetable trial, and our student intern found out through her that there is a essential oil fungicide that's organic, that's with cloves, and I don't know exactly what the formulation is, but sporan and final stop are the names that are being mentioned. Just wondering if you have any experience with those, and I'm assuming being this is part of an organic national trial that Erin's involved with, but any comments on those? I've
8: never worked with those particular products, and I don't know that much about them. What I would suggest is that you give Erin a call and talk to her about it. You might also want to talk to Amanda Gibbons to see if she's had any experience with those particular materials and has any information on how well they work. It's this is really Doug- work-
9: we're using AF400, which is the botanical on our tomatoes, and Doug Rouse has done some work. There are trials in Michigan that have shown it to be fairly effective. It's a much better alternative to copper, but it's much more expensive as well. It's about $200 a gallon. Of course, then you dilute it to spray it, but it's a much lower risk. The active ingredients are clove, rosemary, and peppermint oils, and then there are some other inactives that are all generally recognized as safe compounds. So I don't know many growers who are using it because of the cost, but there's a lot of interest in using it as a potential replacement for copper.
7: Thanks for that update. Last question, Brian, is when we've got these water molds, the root rot kinds of things, and again in organic production, solarization or rotation, what is our best recommendation to try to minimize the spread of those, especially when you have limited space?
8: Try to rotate as much as you possibly can. Certainly, if you're dealing with the water molds, because they produce long-lived resting spores, you do need to allow some time for them to naturally deplete themselves in the soil, and that can be actually a very long period of time for some of these organisms. Some of the other non-oomycetes or non-water molds, they can oftentimes decline in numbers over a relatively short period of time, so a good rotation, and then oftentimes good debris management. Some of these organisms will survive primarily in association with debris. That's not so true of the water molds, but some of the other ones will. So good debris management, good rotation, and then sometimes the best option for certain growers is to stop growing a particular crop. That may be the only option that's available if they have a limited space. So particularly with organic production, that can be a little bit tough. Definitely, there's been some work with cover crops, in particular some of the brassicas or mustards. There's been some work that I'm aware of that you can grow that as a green manure and then incorporate it in. You may get some benefit from doing that for certain of the water molds. And then also, solarization certainly isn't something to ignore. I think in certain situations, it can be difficult to get high enough temperatures for it to be super effective, but in combination with other sorts of strategies, probably a good idea to try that if you're having really serious problems. And Julie, feel free to also comment on that area as well.
0: Can I just ask a question, too? This is Jane in Douglas County. On a very small scale, a lot of our gardeners are growing in containers, and I hear some of them say at the end of the season, they take their containers and dump it into their garden, and some of them dump it into their compost in hopes that they are extending the life of that soil. I suspect that when you have any of those diseases, neither of those are good ways to use that soil.
8: Particularly if you were dealing with one of the oomycetes, the water mold, because of those resting spores, I would really worry about potentially contaminating another area by doing that. Again, unless they're doing really, really good hot composting, I don't know that you're going to get a significant reduction of the water molds in that material. And because those resting spores are pretty tough, you might, even with really high temperature composting, still get some survival. Although I think if you did really good hot composting, that would probably take care of the problem. But I would not advocate that, particularly if they have evidence that they've had a serious root rot problem, if there's any indication that it's something like Pythium or phytophthora. I would be inclined to take that if you have some sort of county or city composting site, allow them to try to handle that material. Or put it in an area where you're not going to be growing a similar crop in the future.
0: Yeah, I think that's a worthwhile comment for our home gardeners this fall.
8: Yeah, the other thing would be if you would happen to accidentally get something like verticillium, in your tomatoes or other vegetables in a pot production, that's, again, something that you would not want to spread into a garden setting. It'll just contaminate additional soil. Thank you. You're welcome. Julie, any comments on the solarization? You probably know more about that than I do.
9: No, I think probably in terms of the disease mushrooms, You're the expert on that. I'm okay. still learning.
8: My concern with what we do here in Wisconsin is if we were in a hotter climate where we had more sunny days, where you get a lot of sunlight and no cloudiness and no cool temperatures, that would work very, very well. But in areas where you only have a couple days where it gets really sunny and then you've got really cloudy conditions where it rains, you may not have a long enough period of high temperature underneath that plastic to really get the temperatures that you need to kill things off. So, again, I think useful in combination with other things. But I think that's true of pretty much anything we do in terms of disease control. If you can use a combination of management strategies, I think you're going to be much better off long-term in terms of keeping things under reasonable control.
7: Does that help, Kevin? Yes, very much so. Thank you. Sorry okay. to be asking all the questions here. No, no, that's fine. And that's a difficult
8: question to answer, particularly with those water molds, because they can be so stable in soil.
0: Any other specialists with us today? Because if not, we'd like to go on to hear what Julie Dawson has to say about our favorite topic of breeding vegetables for flavor.
9: Thanks for the invite. I sent a hand out to Brian who sent it out to the group. So I have a few slides, but I really want this to be more of an informal discussion. So please jump in and interrupt me whenever you have a question or you want to add something. And I'll try to remember to tell people when I'm moving from one slide to the next. So the first slide on the stakeholders, my position is a fairly new one in the college. I've been here for two years now and I'm the urban and regional food systems specialist, which means that my primary stakeholders are urban and peri-urban growers that are selling directly to consumers in metropolitan areas, to restaurants, direct wholesale to some of the co-ops and other stores that carry local produce. And it's kind of between the larger scale agriculture and the home gardener. But the work that I'm doing, I would like that to be relevant to community gardens and the home gardeners that are producing food for their families as well. The farms tend to be smaller scale and very diversified. And for these markets, quality is really a key trait. So I'm looking a lot at market quality and flavor, which is not what I expected to necessarily be working on when I got here, but it's generated a lot of interest. And so it's become a key part of what I'm doing in the trial for varieties. Another thing just to comment on is that for a lot of these growers, they don't necessarily come to the university as a first source of information. There have been individual efforts to reach out to organic and urban growers, but for a large part they don't necessarily immediately see the university as relevant. So if you come and you say, I'm here from the university, I'm here to help, it's like, oh yeah, okay. So we're trying to build trust as well as make sure that the university research and extension is relevant to this group of growers. And what I found is that, if you turn to the next slide, good food really unites a lot of people across income levels, across urban and more rural CSAs or farmer's market farms. People really are drawn to producing good food, and in urban agriculture especially, often the criticism has made that urban agriculture can't possibly produce enough food to feed the city, but that's not necessarily the priority. The priority is often to improve the quality of the food that's available to people locally, and so producing really high-quality vegetables is more important than producing a large volume of calories. Let's move to the next slide. Another thing that's been happening over the past 10 years or so is that there's been increasing interest in developing varieties for alternative systems, for organic agriculture, for market gardens and low-input agriculture. And there have been small seed companies that have developed regionally in order to fill the demand for varieties that are regionally adapted and work well in lower-input systems. And that I think is a response in part to the vacuum that was left by some of the seed company consolidation that happened where varieties were dropped or most companies focused on the California or Florida market. And so the public sector has really stepped in here and also some of those smaller regional seed companies. The people on this slide are all public sector breeders from Wisconsin, Cornell, Oregon State University. We're also working with some people at the University of Florida. And we have seed companies like Johnny's, High Mowing, Wild Garden Seeds, Ball Seeds, Adaptive Seeds, Hudson Valley. They're all very small. And then also a couple of larger breeding companies that are focusing on organic. Bayo and Vitalis are also contributing varieties to this project. So the next slide, I'm going to talk a little bit about the trials in a couple minutes, but I wanted to just explain some of our thinking and how we're setting up these trials. The objective is to find varieties that work really well in Wisconsin for direct market growers that also have very high market quality. And so we really ask ourselves, how do farmers choose new lines or new varieties that they might want to grow? And often they do the variety trials themselves, A survey by Aaron Silva, Alex Lyon, and Mike Bell of all the organic vegetable growers in Wisconsin shows that 72% of them actually do variety trials on their own to identify lines that they might want to grow on a larger scale. This is in response partly to being worried that their favorite variety might get dropped from a catalog, but also because they're always trying to get something new and interesting for their markets. Very few of those farmers are participating in university trials. And so one of the things we would like to do is create a network of trials that could be gardeners, small-scale farmers, research stations, county farms. We're working with the Rock County farm, for example, on one of our trials. And this network could then share information so that farmers would benefit from the trialing that other farmers are doing as well, rather than only seeing their own trial on their own farm. Often... The data is not yield data or the kind of quantitative data that most variety trials produce. It's more peer evaluations of varieties. So they talk to farmers at conferences, There are email listservs, and so they'll identify varieties based on what other farmers have experience with them. And so allowing farmers to share information more easily in a more structured way might facilitate that kind of learning and also help identify which varieties do well in certain regions. If they work for multiple farmers in one region but not for farmers in another region, then we can provide advice about what varieties grow well in different regions of the conference. So the next slide... We've set up these trials to be on a regional satellite model, which is something that provides more flexibility for farmers. We have a research station that grows all of the crops that we're trialing. We've got about 12 different crops that we're working on. We plant them all at the research station to be able to get more quantitative data, and then we send them out to farmers who choose subsets of the trials. And so they're able to choose the crops they're most interested in and also choose varieties that they're more interested in. There's a core subset that everyone grows. We've got about 15 farms right now and a few gardens that are participating. And then they can add extra varieties based on what their particular market is like and what they're interested in. And we really set this up so that farmers and some of the other participants, like chefs and consumers, can help set priorities for the trials so we can respond to what they want to trial in terms of crops. For example, we dropped cabbage and added kale this year because farmers were more interested in kale. And we can shift the number of varieties that we send out They were interested in having more melons on the research station, but fewer on farm because it's hard to grow melons on farm. So they wanted the research data, but not necessarily to take the risk themselves to grow the varieties for the first year. So for the next slide, I just provided a list of the crops that were growing for these trials. We're open to suggestions, and we really would like to expand this to reach more farmers and gardeners. So if these crops are important for your counties, and you know of farmers that might be interested in participating, or if you have access to a farmer uh, research station garden and master gardeners are interested in participating, we'd really like to hear from you. I'm happy to come out in the winter and talk about it and try to recruit people that might contribute information to this I'm hoping there'll be an updated publication on the vegetable varieties for Wisconsin that would then be updated every year so that people could see what other people were saying about varieties and also how they perform on research stations. So with the next slide, I've mapped out what we're doing this year. The blue dots are the farms and gardens that we're working with, and then the green is the research station. So we're centered around Madison and some in Milwaukee. We'd really like to get sites out more in the state. And some of it's depending on funding from grants, but also if there are people that are interested in participating and can do it as an extension activity or have, like I said, Master Gardener groups that might be interested in taking it on as a project. If that's something that people are already doing and might want to participate as part of a larger group, we would really like to put some more dots on the map and represent the state a little better. So the next slide shows the basic data that we ask people to collect. The idea is to make this as simple as possible and also to provide information back to the breeders so that they can then develop varieties that respond to what people are looking for. So with the varieties that we're sending out, there are often new varieties that are on the market or a couple of years from being on the market and the breeders are trying to decide whether to release them. But the biggest part of this project, I think, is to improve the informal discussion between farmers and breeders and chefs and consumers so that the breeders can really target better flavor and better marketability, along with the agronomic traits that are really important to growers. So we ask people to say whether they would grow it again, how marketable it is, what the flavor was like, the strongest point of that variety, and then any major flaws that they wish were not there, like if it was susceptible to a specific disease that they get on their farm. Just a ranking of the best and worst varieties and then any notes that they have. So it's a really simple form. It's very flexible. The idea is to make it easy to participate and easy to share information and to collect the information that's most relevant for other growers. So, next slide. The final part of this project that I'd like to talk about is really involving chefs and other food professionals in the flavor evaluation, and that's been an exciting part of the project because we're working with chefs that really care about the economic survival of small-scale farms in their region. They're buying from local farmers, and they want to help identify varieties that do really well agronomically and also give them the best flavor. And one of the things that's useful about involving chefs in the project is that they're able to articulate very well what they like and don't like about a particular variety. So I taste something and I say, well, that's good or I don't like that. And I don't have really the palate to differentiate exactly what makes one variety better than another. And so the chefs are able to tell us that in a way that is useful for the breeders so that we can then train ourselves to identify what traits we need to make a variety that tastes really good in something that yields well and has diseases instead of everything else that the farmers need. So what we're doing is we're tasting things all as a crew on the farm when we harvest, and then we identify the ones that are preferred among the crew or have really unique flavors, and we give those to the chefs for a more in-depth flavor evaluation and description. And we also have public taste testings where we ask the public to come and taste some of the best varieties. We've done that at the Urban Horticulture Field Day and Farm Tech Days, and we're doing another field day, September 8th, I put the announcement at the end of the slide. So we'd really like to get more involvement of consumers, whether or not they're also growing their own food, in order to identify which varieties are the best tasting, and also what kinds of things make a variety preferred or not. So the next slide is just a quote from Dan Barber, who's a chef at Stone Barns in New York City. And he had a conference a couple of years ago that really kicked this project off, talking about involving consumers and chefs in developing varieties from the very beginning. And that's really what we're trying to do with this project, is have people involved in the decisions that get made by plant breeders as they're developing varieties. In plant breeding, you really can select for any trait that you want as long as there's genetic variability there. You generate new lines every year. You select the best ones. And the best ones can be defined as the highest quality, the highest yield. So you're really talking about decisions that are made at the beginning. And often it's traits that are good for shipping or shelf life. That's what a lot of the California produce industry needs because they're selling to the rest of the country. But direct market growers, they need things like flavor and appearance and also the ability to perform really well in diverse systems. So we want consumers and farmers and chefs to be involved from the very beginning in defining those objectives and making the plant breeding programs much more participatory. If you think about what heirlooms are, they're really selected by gardeners and farmers for flavor, for performance. They were never really meant to be museum pieces, but something that continually evolved. And so that's what we're trying to bring back is the involvement of gardeners and farmers and chefs and consumers in the actual creation of varieties so that once the variety is on the market, it does well. Smaller seed companies can pick it up and sell it to farmers, and then it becomes, hopefully, a workers' variety for the local food system. So the last slide is an announcement of the field day. I can talk a little bit about some of the specific vegetables that we're working on and some of the varieties, if people are interested in that, or I can talk about some of the agronomics things that we're measuring, I'm working on tomatoes and hoop houses versus the field. And we have a number of other growers that are growing either with season extension or hoop houses. So I would like to open it up to questions and kind of see what people are most interested in learning about at this point. And the final slide is just a thank you to everybody who's been involved in the project because it really is a very collaborative project with a lot of farmers taking trials on their farm, chefs helping us to evaluate things, the plant breeders that contribute the varieties, and all the other folks that make the variety trials possible. So with that, if people want to ask questions?
0: Yeah, let's open it up here. I have a question You started saying agronomic, and you gave a few ideas of what that might be, but can you just explain what scale it's agronomic at?
9: So what we're doing is small bed production. The farms we're working with often have fairly intensive production on three to five acres. Some of them are a little larger, some of them are a little smaller. So we're looking at basically bed scale production where you might grow five or six beds that are four by 100 feet of variety. On the research station, we also have smaller plots, so that would be of a garden scale. We're looking for varieties that do well for people who are trying to grow them commercially, but not at the wholesale level, if that helps. Mm-hmm.
0: And then how many sites would you need per region? If you had one farmer that could do one variety trial, that's
4: still interesting to you.
9: Yeah, I think what we're trying to do is make it easy enough for people to participate that they can work it into their normal operation. And the data sheet is something that they can observe a couple times in the season and they can harvest and manage the trial just as they would their other varieties. So as we build this over time, hopefully we get multiple sites. But I think we can start small and try to just expand it one farm at a time in different regions. And eventually, we'll get a network that covers the state, and we can make better recommendations to people when they call asking about varieties.
7: Wonderful. So, Julie, a couple questions. The funding for all of this, what is the stability of this or the potential? it's always about the money when it comes right down to it. So if you just could comment on that.
9: So most of the farmers are doing it as part of their operation. I'm trying to get grants to provide stipends to farmers who are doing a lot more work than would normally be involved. They're doing measurements. I have the Hoop House versus Field Tomato Project where we're doing more measurements. So there I was able to get a fair grant that provides some stipends to farmers. The variety trials on the research station were charging the seed companies a fee for service. A lot of the public lines we're not charging for now, but I think we will have to move in that direction. Some of this is funded by my startup package, and that's definitely not something I want to continue and can't continue. But I think there's enough interest, especially from some of the regional seed companies, that they would like a Midwest trialing site because often they're on the coast. There's a new seed company in the Madison area, AP Whaley Seeds, who I'd like to collaborate with more. I think there will be some funding from that. And for some of the Master Gardener networks or other groups, It may be a fun citizen science project that wouldn't require a lot of funding. But you're right, I'm writing a lot of grants and trying to keep this going by getting grant money and looking at the possibility of more sustainable funding on a fee-for-service basis.
7: And just another comment would be I like the idea of having those really simple evaluation sheets, you know, that example you showed, because any time we're collecting data and um, involving citizens or farmers, that makes a difference in how sustainable they are in participating. Mm -hmm. But another piece to this is you showed that map. It's very common, and it's not unusual to see that kind of distribution for lots of different reasons. But as you consider moving north and involving other sites, One of our challenges that we've always faced, especially here in Spooner, is our short growing season and selecting varieties that are appropriate and then also will ripen before our killing frost. So is there season extension that needs to be worked into this at some point too? So it's just a comment.
9: Yeah, we're definitely doing row covers and cold tolerance trials on the greens and kale and the hoop house with the tomatoes. We're doing a winter carrot trial this year that would be a fall harvest with protection into the winter and seeing how different varieties respond to the cold and which ones are the most resistant. So I would like to keep pushing that farther into the winter a lot of the breeders that we're working with are northern tier breeders, so Johnny's is in Maine, High Mowing is in northern Vermont, so they get about the same cold that we do. Cornell, Wisconsin, obviously, although some of the breeding nurseries are further south, some of them are also trialing things in the north part of the state. Oregon State University, they have some coastal protection, but also part of the state is very continental after you get past the Cascades. And wild garden seeds and adaptive seeds are both in the Pacific Northwest. So we're trying to focus on varieties that would do well in Wisconsin or could do well in Wisconsin. And also trying to incorporate the season extension into our trials so that we can tell people how cold hardy varieties are as well as what the marketability is.
0: Excellent. Do we have any more questions for Julie? I just wanted to have a few seconds to wrap up with some announcements that we have around the state.
4: I would just like to put in another plug for the invasive species workshops that we're doing across the state. We're getting close to the deadline for some of those. They will be happening in mid-September and the early bird deadlines for a lot of them is the first part of September. There's five locations across the state if people are interested.
0: Anyone else have something they want to share?
4: Our
7: final garden seminar at the Spooner Egg Research Station is Saturday, September 12th, 10 o'clock. It's just the end of season, putting the garden to bed, plenty to harvest, all those last season topics. So September 12th, 10 a.m., out in the Teaching and Display Garden.
0: Thank you, Kevin. With that, I'll say that our master gardeners are having their project synopsis on straw bale gardening at a small space gardening walk in the residential neighborhood. And that ties well with Barb's going to be hosting next week, and Sharon's going to be talking about straw bale gardening and other gardening tips for small spaces. So hopefully you can all join us next week to get some of that information out to your gardeners.